Good morning. I'm going to invite you to open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 13 as we look at the last few verses of this letter. Uh, Hebrews is written to Christians who face persecution because of their faith in Christ. The threat is real. Their lives are in danger. However, the more serious danger is not the suffering they face, but the temptation to drift from Christ. Some are beginning to go back to Old Testament worship with its shadows and types and promises of a Messiah. But Jesus has come. He is that Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promised. Jesus is the final prophet, priest, and king. He is true Israel. He is the faithful covenant son, the second Adam. He is the temple. He is God with us. He is the high priest who goes into the holy of holies, the, the very presence of God, not with the blood of bulls and goats, for he is the lamb himself, and he brings his own blood that covers our sin. Earlier in Hebrews 10, we're told that the law, though it was good, was only a shadow of the things to come but not the substance of those realities themselves. Christ died and was raised, and by his one sacrifice brought about eternal redemption for those who are being made holy. Since the new has come in Christ, Old Testament worship has faded. It was good for the time that God gave it, but it has faded and is now obsolete. There is no salvation outside of Christ. To abandon Christ, to return to Old Testament worship, is to turn one's back on God. and the means of salvation that he was now providing in Christ. And there is no hope without Christ. And, and as Hebrews ends, verses 22 to 25 of chapter 13, acts as a postscript to the letter. The author gives an update on, on Timothy. It, he extends a call for Christian greetings, and he exhorts them to heed the words of this letter. And his last words are, grace be with all of you, reminding them and us that the whole 
of the Christian life occurs within the grace of God. Even our suffering. We may not understand why God allows what he does. But be assured that God's goodness and his favor rest upon us in Christ Jesus. The formal end of the letter, and what I want to focus in on this morning, is the benediction. The prayer of God's blessing on his people found in verses 20 to 21. Hebrews 13, 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace, the one who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good to do his will, doing in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That prayer of benediction is just one long sentence. And before we look uh, at this prayer in detail, let us consider what are the essential parts? What are the components of it? What is the subject? What is the predicate? What is the object? Who is doing what to whom? The subject is God, verse 20. Uh, The predicate we find in uh, verse 21, equip. Equip who? What's the object? You. The blessing, the benediction is a prayer that may God equip you, believer. Everything else is explaining who this God is and what his equipping of us actually accomplishes. In verse 20, our God is identified as the God of peace. Peace is intrinsic to the character and existence of God. That's what he is. But we in our fallen state are at enmity with God. In ourselves, before salvation, we are hostile to God and to his ways. We have rejected him. In the Garden of Genesis 3, and ever since, we have chosen not to listen to his voice, but to listen to our own and to go our own way, to follow the flesh rather than the Spirit of God. And Paul tells us in Romans 8, 7, that the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We reject God's rule over our life by rejecting his law. 
his commandments. And to reject God's law is to reject God's righteousness because that's what the law does. It tells us what righteousness looks like. And to reject God's righteousness is to reject his character and his person because God is the definition of righteousness. Sin isn't really a small issue. It's not a matter of preference or choice. When we sin, we do make a choice, and what we are choosing is the world and its desires. And by choosing the world and its desires, we are bypassing God. James 4, you adulterous people, you unfaithful people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We tend to think there's lots of middle ground. There's not. We either choose God or we choose the world. It's either his way and his law and his righteousness or our own passions and desires. To choose the flesh is to reject God. And so God has every right to judge us. To, to destine us to hell, to eternal separation from his presence. But our God is the God of peace. And so our God has made a way to reconcile us to himself. He brings us peace through Jesus Christ, who in his life and death reconciles us back to God. God judges our sin in the death of Jesus and gives us Jesus' righteousness, which merits us life with God. We are justified, declared right by faith in Christ. Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace with God is not simply the absence of conflict. It's something much bigger and more personal. Peace with God is well-being and wholeness. Uh, uh, the, the Hebrew word for peace, this kind of peace, has entered 
into our vernacular, and it's shalom. God provides us with his peace, his shalom. We enter God's perfection and his peace in a right relationship to him. Peace with God is being the people he created us to be, to willingly and lovingly submit to his will and to his authority. That's peace. In Jeremiah 29, verse 11, this well-known verse, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, Plans for your welfare, your peace, your shalom, not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. That's a wonderful promise. When does God give Israel this promise? When they're in exile. When they're in Babylon, he gives this promise when they are not in the promised land, but far from it, and will be for the next 70 years. Some of them hearing this will die in a foreign land and will never see their home again. Yet God promises them that he has purposes and plans for their good, for their wholeness, for their wellness, for their peace. God promises them his goodness and his faithfulness. He promises them his presence. The peace of God is ours who are the people of God by faith, irregardless of circumstances. God's love transcends the ups and downs of our life. As God's sovereignty works all things for our good. That promise isn't just for the next life. That promise is for here and now. Will we believe it? I personally have experienced the deepest and most profound presence of God the sweetness of God in life most during life's hardest times. When life has been the darkest, God has pressed in to bring joy and light into my soul. I can't explain it, but it's true. And those times that it's happened, my prayer has been, let me not forget this moment. 
and how I experienced your faithfulness in the midst of pain and fear of what was going to happen next. Jeremiah speaks God's promise of faithfulness to a people in exile who are asking, is God finished with us? The circumstances looked bleak. So God assures them of his presence and his promise and his purpose towards them. In a similar way, 1 Peter calls us what? The exiles of the dispersion. Reminding us that this this world is not our home. And so we are in our own wilderness wandering as God leads us to his promised land for us. The God of peace reminds us that we're not home yet. But God will lead us home. There is a promised land that God has prepared for us. That is beyond all that I can ask or even think. Christian, God has plans for you, for your peace and for your welfare. Your future and your hope are in his hands. What is the assurance of this hope? Verse 20, the God of peace is the one who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus. In uh, Romans 4, uh, Paul writes in verse 25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Christ was delivered up for on account of our trespasses. It is our sin that sent Jesus to die on the cross. We are responsible. Christ was delivered up for trespasses. He was raised for on account of our justification. In the resurrection, God declares that his wrath against sin has been satisfied. The debt has been paid in full. Jesus cries out, it is finished. Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself and his death satisfied the righteous judgment of God against our sin. And God demonstrated that reality by the fact that he raised Jesus from the dead because death could not hold him. 
1 Timothy 3.16, Jesus was manifested in the flesh, but vindicated by the Spirit. In what sense? By his resurrection. But Jesus is not simply brought back to life. He is raised from the dead to inaugurate a new state of humanity. Verse 20, God is the one who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus. Brought up, actually, brought up is a strange word to use for the resurrection. That's not how the Bible typically describes it. To be brought up is to lead someone upward from a lower level to a higher level. And so in a sense, uh, you could speak of the resurrection this way. Physically, Jesus was brought up, led up from the place of the dead to the place of the living. But more is meant by this word. It's, It's used to slow us down to reconsider what is happening at the resurrection. It's not simply being brought to life, but... It is that. It's more. It's not just leading up physically, but also spiritually. By his resurrection, Jesus has now entered a higher level of being. He is experiencing the life as the firstborn of the new creation. It is a resurrection Life, a higher level or plane of existence. Think of Romans 1, 3 to 4. Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. And he was declared or appointed to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is one divine person with two natures. He is truly God and truly man. In his divine nature, he has always been and always will be the eternal son. He is the son of God. He is the second person of the triune God. But in his humanity, in his human nature, as one of us, Jesus has been declared or appointed Son of God by virtue of his resurrection. We tend to think that this is speaking of Jesus as this divine person. No, it's the human Jesus has been declared the Son of God. He is a covenantal son of faithfulness. And that faithfulness is identified by his resurrection. Jesus was raised and transformed. He was resurrected into a new state of humanity, a new way of living, a new way of being with power and obedience. In Matthew 28, the resurrected Christ is about to ascend and be enthroned in glory. And he will rule his kingdom. And he says to his disciples, 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching them all that I have commanded you. Now, we don't think anything of that. Because the eternal son has always had all authority. But that's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about the eternal son in his divine nature, but Jesus the man, one of us, who by virtue of his obedient life and death and by his resurrection is appointed son of God and given all authority that is creaturely possible for a human to have. All authority is what Jesus was given. It wasn't his by nature in his humanity. He earned it. So what has that got to do with me? Isn't that what we always ask? What has that got to do with me? What's the importance of that? Through faith... You and I share in Christ's resurrection. And everything that is his now belongs to us. We don't necessarily experience it all right now, but it is ours. And it should make us ask, what more do you want me to have in this moment? You, my friend, if you are in Christ, you have died and you have been raised with Christ. You have entered into this new life. 1 John 3, 2, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. We will see the fullness of Christ in the new humanity, and our humanity will be changed as well completely. But that new humanity has already begun inside of us, in the inner man. Think of Paul again in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? New creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. He has provided peace and part of that peace is being part of the new creation. We have peace with God. We are reconciled to him and so we partake of Christ's nature. And if the new creation, this new creation nature has begun in us, then we should be thinking and living differently. Responding to suffering as a new creation with faith in God. In Ephesians 1, Verses 19 to 21, Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus. And so he is praying for us. And he prays that they might see what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us 
who believe. According to the working of God's great might that he worked in Christ when God raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He prays that we might see the power of resurrection alive in ourselves. It is the same resurrection power that lives in you. And God has declared you to be a son of God along with Jesus. We share in his sonship. Romans 8, if we are led by the Spirit, then we are sons of God, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. One with Christ through faith. We share in all that he has obtained in his humanity for us. We are now citizens of his kingdom. We are members of his family. And together we are the dwelling place of God by his spirit. We are his temple. Our God of peace raised up Jesus Christ as firstborn of the new creation by, as it says in our text, according to the blood of the eternal covenant. God's promise of peace and salvation goes into eternity past, before the world began, and assures us of our eternity future. God's constant refrain throughout Scripture, from Old Testament through the New Testament, is, you will be my people, and I will be your God. God's purpose for the creation has always been God's people living in a garden paradise under the rule of God. That's God's plan for us. But since the fall, that creational promise has come only through the shedding of blood. Salvation through judgment. And we can see it throughout Scripture. God promised Abraham a land and a seed through whom the nations would be blessed. God makes a covenant with Abraham. And in Genesis 15, God instructs Abraham to cut animals in half and lay them out. And, and Abraham knows what God is doing. It was common practice in the ancient Near East when you made a covenant that this procedure would happen, and the, and the weaker or the dependent participant in the covenant would pass through the animals, and by passing through the animals, he is pledging allegiance 
that he would love and be faithful to his covenant Lord. And so Abraham cuts these animals expecting that he himself will walk through them, committing himself to God. But that's not what happens. God manifests himself in the form of a smoke and flame. And as Abraham watched, God himself passed through the animals. And by doing so, he declared, I will be faithful to you, Abraham. Or let me be ripped apart like these animals. He not only promised faithfulness, he prophetically tells Abraham, though Abraham may not fully understand it, how he would accomplish this covenant. That God himself would be ripped apart to pay, to fulfill, to accomplish the covenant. Now, how is that even possible? How can God die? He can't. That's an impossibility until the eternal son takes on flesh. And he passes through the animals by dying on the cross to fulfill the covenant promise so that we could be the people of God living in a garden paradise willingly under the rule of God. Earlier in the Old Testament, in Genesis 3, when humanity first sins, they are exiled from the garden paradise. They choose their own way. And by being exiled from the garden paradise, they're, they're separated from the tree of life, which represents eternal life with God, his fellowship and his peace. At the end of chapter 3 of Genesis, there is an angel with a sword guarding entrance to the tree of life. No one can access the tree of life without first facing the judgment of God. Jesus is the one who faces death, ripped apart from life as he faces the judgment sword of God. And Revelation 2 tells us that we now have access to the tree of life through Christ. In some mysterious way that is beyond our comprehension, Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. This has never been plan B. That, that may not make sense to us as we try to comprehend the will of God in history. But that's just what the Bible reveals, and so we accept it as true. And so we have faith. And we know that Ephesians 1, God tells us that he chose us in Christ. If we have faith in Christ, 
God chose us to have faith in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Somehow, by the blood of the eternal covenant, God in eternity past decided to make us his own in and through his electing love, choosing to save you and me. Now, how that works, we're talking about election and God's predestination, and Christians have argued about that for ever. Before we get all upset about that, let us just stop and glory in the mystery of it. Before we try to figure it out, and I'm not saying we can't give some time to thinking about it and how it fits in Scripture. Stop and just thank God that somehow, unknown to us, God saw you as weak and helpless even before you were born, lost in sin, destined for hell. And he says, you are mine. I will save you. I will make you my child. And give thanks to the the God of this eternal covenant. The God of peace raised up Jesus according to his eternal covenant to be our good shepherd, our guide, and our protector. Jesus himself said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they will follow me, and I will give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who gave them to me, he is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. In ourselves, we are weak and helpless. We are sheep that need someone to lead and protect us. Sometimes we can get indignant about that because sheep are weak and stupid. And we don't like the implication that it says about us. Just think about your life. <laughs> You've done a lot of stupid things. You need a savior. You need a protector. You need someone to show you and take you to a promised land of hope and safety. Only as we follow Christ can we be called his sheep. 
Only his sheep receive the benefits of salvation that Jesus merited for us. Christ is faithful and he will lead us home even through the hard and difficult times of this life. Jesus says in John 14, do not let your heart be troubled. He's telling us that because there's lots in life to have our heart troubled about. There are things to be anxious about and worried about. He says, don't. Don't let your heart be troubled, but rather believe in God. Believe all that you know is true about God. Believe in God. Believe in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will receive you to myself so that where I am, appointed Son of God with power, where I am, in my Father's house, there you will be also. Our good shepherd will lead us home. Think uh, back to the beginning of the sermon. What is the, the thrust of this, this benediction? May God equip you. May the God of peace who raised Jesus up from the dead lead you home according to his eternal covenant. May that God equip you make you perfect, make you whole, make you complete. What does it say? With everything good, everything right and necessary, everything you need this side of eternity. For what purpose? To do his will. May God equip you with everything good, everything needed to do his will, to hear his voice and obey him in every moment of life. The reality of who God is in verse 20 should give us confidence to know that God is empowering us to obey him in verse 21. No matter what the circumstance regardless of season of life. Sometimes as Christians, we can feel overwhelmed and obedience seems so hard. Wouldn't it just be better to ignore God for this moment? We think, I can't obey. It's too hard. But you have already died to sin when you have placed your faith in Christ. You have been 
crucified with Christ. Paul tells us in Galatians 2. Is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Peace with God means we are one with Christ and the new creation has already begun in us. And so we can obey as we depend upon the Spirit. Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit, meaning active dependence. And you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh, the old sinful ways. Our text says in verse 21 uh, that God will equip you to do his will, doing in us. God is the one that is doing in us that which is pleasing in his sight. God calls us to obedience. He equips us by giving us himself. The spirit dwells within us, and it's the spirit conforming us, working in us obedience to Jesus Christ as we lean in upon the spirit. God is the one who works in us, faith and obedience. Think of of what Paul says in Philippians 2.12. It is a God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Faith in Christ leads to a life lived in obedience to what God says. God equips and works out righteousness in us as we hear his voice, depend on his spirit, and then in faith step out and do what he tells us to do. God provides his peace, his promise, and his care to equip us with all that we need for life and godliness by his spirit that now lives in us. Will you pray with me? Our Father, let us not hear these words and simply say amen this morning, but let us examine our heart Tonight, tomorrow, and every day, asking you uh, to reveal in us where we are weak, where we fail, where we tend to close our eyes and our ears to your voice. Father, we ask that your spirit would increase our love for you and for your righteousness. May we see joy in obeying all that you have commanded us. Uh, Father, work in us uh, today because we need you to, to do so. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.